Welcome to CTSI Science Cafe, a community engagement initiative of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. This program was recorded in front of our live community audience at Providence Baptist Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This October 2019 Science Cafe features a presentation and community conversation titled Raising Awareness of Street Drugs and Their Effects, an Overview. Our guest presenter was Dr. Jillian Theobald, Assistant Professor and Co-Medical Director of the CTSI's Adult Translational Research Unit at the Medical College of Wisconsin and Quality Assurance Director of the Wisconsin Poison Center. Here now is Dr. Jillian Theobald. So my two most important jobs are, I'm an ER doctor at Freydert. So we see all the traumas that come through. We see a lot of the drug poisonings and the overdoses that come through. And we see a lot of the people that are primarily affected by drug use in the community. And then I also work at the Poison Center. So we get calls that run the gamut. We get calls about little kids who've been poisoned by lead in their homes. We get calls about adolescents overdosing on their prescription medicines. We get called by people who were abusing drugs and then had a bad effect or had too much. So we get consulted on all sorts of things and we cover the entire state of Wisconsin. So I'll get calls from way up north from a industry accident where somebody got exposed to a chemical at work and then I'll get calls from our own hospitals here in Milwaukee County. Another interesting thing that I do is I've been involved in a large research project in Milwaukee County that looks specifically at the opioid epidemic and how it affects our own community here. And we take data from the medical examiner. So those are the opioid related deaths. So everybody who's died in Milwaukee County, their toxicology report showed an opioid. So whether that was oxycodone, heroin, fentanyl, you name it. We looked at those cases. We also looked at the cases where the paramedics showed up where somebody was overdosing. And they gave a medication to help reverse the overdose called naloxone. And so we looked at those cases because we wanted to see the people who weren't dead but we're still touching the medical system in some way so that we could potentially intervene. We also looked at people who checked into Milwaukee County Behavioral Health Systems. What were they going to get help for? So we looked at that. We also looked at people who utilized the needle exchange. So people who were IV drug abusers and were going back to the needle exchange to get clean needles. We got data from there. We got data from lots of different sources, and it really helped us paint a pretty good picture of what was going on with the opioid epidemic in Milwaukee County. And we found some interesting things. I think probably the interesting thing is that a lot of what people expected myth-wise was going on, that oh, it's just people who use heroin that are overdosing, and it's just the heroin that's causing their overdose, that actually isn't true. No, not at all. Most of the time, people who, if they are getting heroin off the street, oftentimes it's contaminated with you name it, right? So contaminated with fentanyl, right? The synthetic cannabinoids, the fake weed, the K2, the spice that people were using, the epidemic actually started in Chicago where we started to see people coming in with really horrendous nosebleeds or lots of bloody urine or you know, vaginal bleeding that didn't stop for weeks. 
And it turns out that due to some smart doctors in Chicago, that they determined that those patients were poisoned with rat poison. Do you guys know what Coumadin is? It's a blood thinner. Rat poison is that same blood thinner, but it lasts in your system for months, like almost a year. And we think it's from a manufacturing error. So fake weed or the spice, it's just dried plant material. So you could take some oregano from your kitchen and they spray the chemical that gets people high on it, and then the people smoke it. And about three quarters of people who use that drug do it so that they can avoid their urine drug screen, right? So if they're getting drug tested at work, they will smoke this stuff so that their urine drug screen isn't positive. Some people, like the other 25% like the way it makes them feel, but most people do it so that they don't turn their urine drug screen positive. And the problem is that you never know what's sprayed on that plant material, right? It's probably way safer just to smoke your regular weed. <laughs> and the effects from synthetic cannabinoids or the fake weed run the gamut. Google zombie outbreak in New York. So a couple years ago, some people had smoked some fake weed. And what it really did is made them almost like zombies. So there's a video of a guy like bending over a skateboard just on the side of the street. And then they'll pan across the sidewalk and you'll see people just laid out on the sidewalk there. And so there's that kind of effect. There's the really agitated, aggressive, angry effects. And then there's some that's similar to weed. So similar to when people normally smoke marijuana, the effects of that. When people smoke marijuana, typically you expect chill, <laughs> laughing, right? That kind of effect. And you sometimes get that with the synthetic cannabinoids but more common than not, you get that wide array of effects. And you don't really know also what's in there. You don't know what they sprayed on it. So the rat poison epidemic came out of Chicago. They think it was a manufacturing error. So the chemical structure of the rat poison looked very similar to the chemical structure of some of the fake weed. And so they think that somebody just made it wrong and then that was what had happened. And we had a large amount of cases here I think on our last count, we had 60 to 70, and we had about four or five deaths. And that was just the ones that we knew about. And the problem is, to reverse the rat poison, you have to take vitamin K. And vitamin K is real expensive. And then oftentimes, the patients that would come in with these symptoms weren't well-connected. They didn't have regular doctors. They weren't really in the medical system where we could reach out and help them and they would come back for their appointments and take their medications. And so it was a very difficult population to treat and oftentimes they would bounce back with repeated bleeding because they didn't have access to their vitamin K. We don't really see the rat poisoning anymore. Whatever batch that they had, I think has been used up, but we'll see other poisonings. And so that brings up another point is adulterants or contaminants within the drugs that people use. And that can be a huge issue. Some of the other things that we've seen, fentanyl contaminated cocaine, which can be actually really concerning. Cocaine, like people know the effects that they get from that, and they know how much to use, and they typically get the same effects from the amount that they used. But now you put in a drug with a completely different mechanism of action, and it works in a totally different way, and that has actually caused some deaths that we've seen and so we found also a antiparasitic medication, so like for parasites, in cocaine called levamisol. And that can cause a horrendous vasculitis where people will necrose their skin and their tips of their noses and their ears might fall off. We found them to be contaminated with other medications like clenbuterol, which is a performance enhancing drug. 
you name it, they found it in the drugs, <laughs> essentially. And part of it is that they'll cut the drugs with something similar. So like if they're gonna cut cocaine, they might put some powdered caffeine in there, right? Because you get that stimulant like up effect, but it's way cheaper to have the caffeine, the powdered caffeine. I can buy a 10 grams off of amazon.com and they'll slip it in there so then they can dilute their product and make more money. And you never know like what the cut of what is. So we've been collecting this data for the last four years in Milwaukee County. If you guys are interested, you can go and read the data report that tell us who's dying, right? Is it African Americans? Is it white people? Is it Hispanic? Is it men? Is it women? Is it older people? Is it younger people? What demographic is the most affected? And then it tells us what is actually found in their toxicology reports. And if you look, most people aren't just dying from heroin alone. There's a bunch of other medicines or other drugs in their system at the time of death. That data report also shows a lot of information about who's overdosing. So not the people who are dying, but the people who are coming close to death, right? That need naloxone, that need the antidote for the opioids. And so that population, the male-female distribution, males about 60% of the time, so like two-thirds versus a third for females. The deaths actually occur more in the older population, so about 50s is the biggest age group. The overdoses skew a little bit younger so maybe around the 20s or 30s. There's deaths in all the age categories, but those are the categories where we see the most. And then it shows a lot of other information about sort of what happens around the time of these overdoses. When the ambulance shows up, are these people staying at their house or are they actually going to the hospital? And what we've seen over the last four years is a lot more people refuse transport to the hospital. And I think that's a product of the law the way that the law worked up until about two years ago is if you overdosed on an opioid and you come to save me with naloxone, your friend, you have it with you, you are protected from the law, okay? So there's a Good Samaritan law where if someone provides the antidote, they have immunity. They can't get held to jail, they can't get arrested. But they purposely drafted the law that the person who overdoses can get hauled to jail. And they thought that was the only way to get people help. Put them in jail, because then that can get them into a system where they can get clean and can get help and treatment, right? Problem is, is that not a lot of jails have a robust system for helping people. And so the logic is a little bit flawed, because it really deterred people from coming in to get help from the medical community, which is where they need to go. And so in 2017, I believe, they changed the law, where now everybody has immunity. The overdose victim and then the Good Samaritan. The word was out though, and what we've seen is that people refuse transport. Initially, four years ago, it was only like one or 2%, and now we're up to about 12% of people refusing transport. And that's only for when the ambulance comes. There's people that have their own naloxone, so you can buy it over the counter in Wisconsin now. You can actually get it from the needle exchange, and there's people who will have it with them. Their family members will carry it with them. And so that, we don't know that data very well. We do have some of it, the stuff that we know from the needle exchange is that 85% of those patients don't call ambulance. Only 15% of the time do they actually call the ambulance or come in for medical help. So depending on where you're pulling the data from, sometimes the numbers are a little bit different. I guess the good news and all that terrible data is that in the last four years, we finally saw the deaths level off and start to decrease. So that was good. 
And we've also seen fentanyl as a contaminant there a lot less in the last year. So that was also good news. One more thing, and then I'll open it up for you guys for questions. There's been a lot of talk in the media recently about vaping. So vaping actually became popular, I would say, maybe about five or six years ago. And essentially what it is, it takes liquid nicotine and it heats it up so it vaporizes it and people inhale it. It was initially marketed as it's a safe alternative to smoking. So if you look at the percentage of people that ultimately become addicted to it, okay, nicotine is probably one of the most addictive substances out there. It's more addictive than heroin, right? Marijuana is probably the least, and then everything else is in between. So the vaping was initially touted as a way to get off of cigarettes, right? It's an alternative to smoking. It's safer than smoking. And I think that was very overblown because um, we didn't really know then. Like, there were new devices out there. The liquid nicotine is diluted in fluid, like polyethylene glycol or other diluents, and we don't really know what inhaling that long-term can do. And so since then, the marketing for it has dramatically increased. And having a Juul, have you guys seen what the Juul looks like? It's tiny, it looks almost like a USB device. And kids can hide it in their sleeves like this and inhale it. And it's social status akin to like having an iPhone at school, right? And so we've seen a dramatic increase in the amount of vaping that these kids do. There is a national survey that's done every year, and it started in the 70s, and it surveys 8th graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders in high schools across the U.S. It's called the Monitoring the Future Survey. And so what they do is they just ask kids, what are you doing, <laughs> right? And what we found is back in the 90s when I was in high school, 20% of kids smoked cigarettes, right? Now, less than 5% do. But now what we see is there's a lot more people vaping than actually smoke. More people smoke marijuana now than smoke cigarettes. So it's been a very interesting change. But now vaping in the last few years has really exceeded everything else. The interesting thing is that when they surveyed the eighth graders, most of them were just vaping flavored liquid. So if you go to Jewel's website, you can get a creme brulee flavored liquid, a chocolate or a mint. And if you go to a vape shop, they will mix up all their flavors. They will have bubble gum, they'll have grape, like you name it. And then what they found is that as the kids, so 10th graders and 12th graders, the percent that were vaping nicotine containing liquids and the percent that were vaping THC containing liquids, so the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana started to increase over time. And we've seen that increase, the percentage of people doing it. So as the kids get older, they're doing it more often. They're vaping THC. And then over time, we've seen that percentage get bigger. And we had eight adolescents, so they were 16 to 17-year-olds, in the ICU at Children's Hospital, intubated on a ventilator. And nobody knew what was going on. These were previously totally healthy kids. And so these kids ended up with no pneumonia, although they had been on antibiotics for like three to five days, they weren't getting any better. So they couldn't figure out what was going on. And eventually, they put these kids on very high-dose steroids. And the steroids were to reduce the inflammation in their lungs, and then all of a sudden, they started to get better. And when they were able to extubate them to take the breathing tube out and get them off the ventilator, they found this common denominator that all of them had been vaping. Yeah. And we had the first cases here in Milwaukee. And then a bunch of other them started ticking up around the US. And the most recent CDC report came out. There's been over 1,000 documented cases, probably triple that undocumented 
And then there's been, I think in the 20s or 30s for deaths. And so it's pretty scary. And we're not quite sure exactly what it is, but the common denominator is vaping and vaping THC containing cartridges or carts as I was corrected by a patient in the ER. <laughs> they are just little cartridges that will click into the vape device and then they'll be able to smoke them. The underlying thought is that these were counterfeit cartridges. So they weren't manufactured. People were refilling them with this THC containing liquid. Right. There's no way to tell the difference. Part of it's where you buy it. There's vape stores around here. If you go and buy it from them, it's probably pretty legit and unlikely to be refilled or contaminated. If you're buying it off the street, it's much more likely to be contaminated. The underlying theory is that there's hydrogen cyanide in these and they're inhaling that and that's causing a very severe like inflammation of their lungs. And I've seen pretty mild cases. So I, I had two patients come into the ER young, like 1920s. They got diagnosed with a pneumonia at urgent care, both of them, like three days prior, were on antibiotics, not getting any better, trouble breathing, just felt ill. I repeated their x-rays, their pneumonia wasn't any worse or better. It wasn't even that impressive to begin with. And I eventually started them all on steroids and sent them home. But those are cases that we aren't picking up. So like when I told you guys there's a thousand cases so far that the CDC reported across the US, there's a bunch of lower level cases that I don't think are getting reported. The other issue too is that it wasn't until 2016 that the FDA regulated any of this e-cigarette business. So prior to that, that industry was on its own, policing itself, which you know how that goes. And what they found is that people who use the e-cigarettes don't actually stop smoking. It just increases their nicotine delivery and then they just up either their e-cigarette use or their vape device use or their regular cigarette use. And I'll tell you this, I live south of here in the suburbs and there was a seven-year-old that showed up to my kid's elementary school with their parents' vape device. Yeah. And to kids, these look like toys. And you can imagine, you know, I have a seven, six, four, and two-year-old. Like, they, all of them would play with that stuff. So it's becoming much, much more common. And the concerning thing about little, little kids getting into this stuff is that the liquid nicotine is really concentrated. In one milliliter, which you guys use eyedroppers, right? That's one little drop out of the bottle. There can be anywhere from 12 to 18 milligrams of nicotine. Now, that's what's in an entire cigarette. And these dropper bottles aren't childproof caps. And so we've had kids get exposed to these e-cigarette liquid, what they refill the vape devices with. The effects, like nicotine poisoning is no joke. And there has been a death. There was a death in Israel from the e-cigarette, the liquid nicotine. And there's been other poisonings that have happened and that have been reported in the literature. I know that um, watching the news and they're saying that there's going to be a settlement on the opioid. So I don't know that much about the lawsuit, but if you guys are interested in kind of how we got here to this opioid epidemic today. So the Sackler family owns Purdue Pharmaceuticals and Purdue Pharmaceuticals are the makers of oxycodone. The settlement from the lawsuit really came from them knowing the addictive potential and just continuing to market and to put out the drug there to physicians that it's safe, it's fine, it's low addiction potential. And in spite of all this data coming into that company, they kept promoting it and making more of it. It kind of started in the 90s with good intentions. We know as physicians that we undertreat pain. And physicians disproportionately undertreat pain in African Americans. We know that. 
So they started to institute this idea that pain is the fifth vital sign. The VA did that, right? So have you guys ever been to the doctor? Or if you brought your child to the doctor and they make you do that faces thing, right? Or you have to put a number on your pain. But it's a very subjective thing. And so they wanted to just chart documenting it to bring people's attention to it so that physicians did a better job of treating it. What happened is that they started to link some of that to reimbursement. Oh, well, you're really good at treating patients' pain. You guys ever done the surveys when you leave the doctor's office? And it says, did the doctor address your pain? Were the nursing staff welcoming? Did the doctor listen to you? Those kind of things. And recently, up until this last year or so, they took the pain question off because they didn't want doctors to think their customer service was based on if they gave pain medications or not. So they took that question off. But what happened around that same time that the VA put out the pain is the fifth vital sign thing is that there was a really engaging, wonderful speaker. And he was the head of the American Pain Society. And he went around telling everybody that opioids for non-cancer pain, long-term use of them was safe and not addictive, which ain't true. <laughs> and so what happened is that physicians, we go and do, we do our continuing medical education, and there's this well-respected physician up there who's the head of the American Pain Society going around telling all the physicians this is safe to do. We undertreat pain. We know we do. This is safe to do. And what happened then is our prescribing of opioids, if you look at what we prescribed back like late 80s, early 90s, we are four times that amount now. Now, we consume as a nation 80% of the opioids in the world right? I don't think we have 80% of the pain, <laughs> but we have 80% of the opioids. And part of that is from the pharmaceutical companies. In 2015 was the first time we saw prescriptions level off, but we're still four times what we were 20 years ago. The CDC came out with rational prescribing guidelines, what's appropriate for chronic pain, what do you start at, how do you wean people off, that kind of thing. So one of the unknown side effects of chronic opioid use is something called opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So hyperalgesia, hyper means too much, and algesia is pain. And they did this crazy study. People would get electrodes shoved into their arm, and they would get shocked, and they would score their pain. And then what they did is they gave them a dose of, it was remifentanil, so a fentanyl derivative, and they looked at their pain, right? And their pain dropped because they were getting a pain medication while they are getting shocked. And they looked at the area where they felt the pain, and they were able to say it was right here. And they looked at people who didn't get anything. It was just a placebo. And those people also, though, had a little bit of a reduction in their pain after they were getting shocked. Because we have natural endorphins and normal mechanisms for us to treat our own pain in our brains. And so what happened is after they stopped the fentanyl infusion, the people who got the fentanyl, their pain was worse than the people who didn't get it. And the reason is, is that when you get that fentanyl or you use opioids chronically, that reduces your body's natural mechanisms for treating the pain. And then those patients also weren't able to localize the pain as well. So before they said it was here, they'd be like, it's here. You know, so it was a much less well-circumscribed area of pain. And this is a very, very common thing, is that people who are on these chronically long-term, oftentimes their pain gets worse, it's not as well-controlled, and they're not as well able to localize it, and they probably have the opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Physicians aren't good at recognizing it. And there's been lots of large studies where we ultimately wean people off of the opioids, and their pain gets better because of that. So it's difficult because people have real pain. And so what do you do, right? 
I think you have to spend more time talking to patients. These are the side effects of these medications. These are the risks of taking them. This is what you should do first. This should be your last resort. And we've actually gotten a lot better as a medical community treating pain in different ways. So we can do steroid injections, we can do nerve blocks. There's a whole wide array of things that are much safer. Yeah. I wanted to get back to the vaping and the hookah industry. Is this the same type of product? Hookah's a little bit different and there's an added risk to hookah. People can get carbon monoxide poisoning if it's not like set up right. So it's another increased risk for that. But it's similar. And I'll tell you, people can put anything in these vape devices or in the hookah products too. Going into the CBD industry. Yes. Is that uh, regulated? So it is primarily self-regulated. Wisconsin CBD oil is legal. Marijuana is not legal here, but CBD derivatives are. It's minimally dermally absorbed, so people will use it topically very often. The issue is, is that it can turn your urine drug strain positive. So people have to be very careful if they're using it topically. It will not get you high, but it will turn your urine drug screen positive. So you have to be aware of that. Yeah. Where is it that you can go and find that battle before? If you go to Milwaukee Cope, C-O-P-E, it's the Community Opioid Prevention Effort. If you guys just Google that, there's a website. There's also a wonderful resource on there if you guys are looking for people in your community doing work in that area. So we surveyed everybody in Milwaukee County. We did an inventory of people doing education, people going to high schools to talk, people doing residential treatment programs. All of that is listed on there and who the contact person is and what their contact information, and we confirmed all of that. So that inventory is super useful if you're looking for somebody to come help you with whatever. Do you have a lot of people that come in and overdose on pills and stuff? That commonly is what people start on. So they think that 80% of current users started with the actual pills. And what's fascinating is they looked at the five most common surgeries, mastectomy, hernia repair, gallbladder removal, and they looked at what doctors prescribed and then what people actually used after the surgery. And they're very different. So doctors would sometimes give people 10 days worth of opioids, and they'd only use a couple days. So what do you do with those leftover pills? People sell them, right? Or people put them in their medicine cabinet because they don't know what to do with them. They get a bored teenager on the weekend, or their friends are looking for something to do, and they go surfing through there and pull them out. And so part of it is that we're prescribing too many, these leftover pills out in the community, and the people don't know where to get rid of them. And you can tell people any fire station or police station will take those pills back, but people don't feel comfortable walking up there with a bottle of pills and be like, here. <laughs> so like the drug take backs has been an issue. The other issue too is that oftentimes it's much more expensive to buy those pills on the street than it is just to buy a bag of heroin. And you can get a lot more high off the bag of heroin than you can the pills. How does methadone fit in? So methadone is actually a wonderful drug. It is an opioid replacement therapy. So it doesn't get people high, but it prevents their withdrawal. And withdrawal is one of the most common reasons for people to continue using. And so methadone, its half-life is days, okay? So heroin's half-life is like four hours. So you get high, it wears off, you start to get withdrawal, you go get high again. Methadone, real steady. And it can be remarkable for people because it can stabilize them, right? So they're not having those highs and lows, they're not having the withdrawal, the cravings, and they can go back and be an effective member of the community again. So it can be life-saving for people. There's a lot of resistance to it because people think, well, it's just another drug. You're just replacing your habit with that. So how do you get 
get weaned off of methadone? Some people never do. It's a very slow process over time where you monitor their dose and their symptoms. Yeah. There's people who will stop cold turkey. There's people who need methadone. There's people who need methadone for a while. Another reason a lot of people relapse is that oftentimes their psychosocial situations are just really unstable. People in the heroin using community often get sex trafficked. They often are homeless. I mean, I can't imagine having that stress on me and then trying to get sober at the same time, especially in a drug that's very, your body becomes very physically dependent upon. Sometimes if they need methadone to get into a stable living situation and a stable work situation, and then later they can talk about weaning off of it, it's a very much an individual thing. And some people aren't able to wean off of it, and that's fine. What is heroin? Someone told me it was a horse tranquilizer. So carfentanil, have you guys heard of that? That was the elephant tranquilizer. All of them are opioids, right? So when we talk about opioids, that's something that hits your opioid receptors in your brain. That can be oxycodone, that could be heroin, that could be methadone, carfentanil, all of them. Heroin, it was actually made by, I think, Bayer as a pharmaceutical agent. Yeah, and then they realized how addictive it was, but now people know how to make it. Yeah, so it's an illicit drug. I think the horse tranquilizer you're talking about was the carfentanil. That's often used for very large animals because it's very potent, which means you only need a small amount of the drug to get the effect. And so it can really sedate an elephant or a horse. But heroin could too. You just need more of the drug to do it. Right, so that is always the mantra, is start at the lowest effective dose and stay there. So I see people for acute issues in the ER, right? Broken bones, back pain, things like that. And I'll do all my other things first, and then I will start them at the lowest effective dose. And you can even cut oxycodone tablets in half, right? So you cut it in half and they can have half of that. And then you have to give people sort of reasonable expectations surrounding their pain. In terms of why physicians prescribe huge doses, anecdotally, I think they do start out low, but they just end up increasing the dose, increasing the frequency of the dose over time because the patient's pain isn't controlled. And then they end up on these massive doses. Short term, like if you have your knee replaced, you need some pain medicine. Like that is a painful procedure. Like they put, you know, metal in your knee, right? And so it's totally reasonable to take those medications but long term, that's where we get into all the issues. Thanks for listening to CTSI Science Cafe. We invite you to join us and be part of our next community conversation. To learn more about CTSI Science Cafe and how you can attend, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Science Cafe is produced by Dr. Oshoya Garrison co-produced by Brian Bellmer. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Doriel Ward and Dr. Reza Shakir.